Our text this morning to read is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. 1 Thessalonians 3. We will continue our studies on this letter. Today we reach number 8. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. And my subject is how to pray for one another. Where on earth did you get that? Well, we'll read the text and I'll explain you how. Troy told me that was the subject of the Sunday school. And I assure you, we didn't talk to each other during the week. So perhaps the Lord wants to tell us something about praying and praying for one another. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. The Word of God reads in my translation. Therefore, when we could not bear it any longer... We were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in the faith, that no one may be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass, and just as you know, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us, As we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly day and night that we might see your face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as all we do, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father and the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. And that is the reading of the word of God. Let us pray. Father, we commit to you the reading and the exposition from your word. We are keenly aware of our inability to express, to explain, and to listen. Unless your spirit comes and illumines the mind and helps us, deals with our boredom, deals with the frailties of the speaker, deals with the distractions. Father, unless you make your word effective, It is to no purpose that we travail in it. That's why we pray your blessings upon your word, not only here in our little gathering, but wherever Jesus is being preached and proclaimed, wherever your people is gathered, we pray that you may glorify yourself in their midst, that you expand the borders of Israel in their midst, that you come and magnify Christ. We pray these mercies in his name. Amen. I read recently an interesting thought. 
And I found, I found rebuking even. It says, unless a person learns to live not based on what people expect them to be, but on what they really are, they are not truly free. Hmm. So people have this expectation of how we should be, and we sort of keep up with the expectation. But in reality, that's not us. Social media is a great testament to that, isn't it? We choose the best pictures for our Instagram and Facebook and all of those postings. I've never seen the picture of anybody just as they come out of bed. Never. To this day. You, you really have to go into the dark web to find those things, and I'm not into that. But we try to post and pose and be the best for people to see. But that's not us. One of the things that attract me a lot about Paul as a writer, as a servant of God, is his openness and his candidness to reveal his frailty. Even when he wrote to the Corinthians, who despised him for his weakness, he spoke to them about those weaknesses as the sign of his true calling from God. And this passage is one of those passages that you say, unless you're preaching through a letter consecutively, you say, what do I get out of that? Here's Paul just retelling anecdotally some of the bad things that happened to him as he writes to the Thessalonians. And in particular, he's telling them of his anxiety while he was in Athens. After he left the, Thessal- the Thessalonians, he spent with them three weeks. He had to leave the city under sort of persecution, goes to Athens, and from there he sends Timothy. He goes with Timothy, he goes with all his, his companions, and he says, you know what, I'm too anxious about the Thessalonians, I'm going to send Timothy back to them. From Paul was writing from Corinth at that point when he sent Timothy from Athens. It's a trek of about, I don't know, 300 miles, give or take. In the context of those days, if, if it would have been walking, it would have been a long journey. But both cities were port cities, so probably Timothy went by boat. So it was, relatively speaking, a short trip. Timothy could find out how were the Thessalonians doing, and then he brought a report back to Paul while in Athens. Now, Paul right now is writing from Corinth, this letter. But he's telling them how he felt after he left them. And he very candidly speaks to them about his anxiety and about his, his unrest while he's in Athens, thinking about them, because obviously... The Jews were there. They caused a stir up in the city or stirring up in the city. He had to leave the place in a, in a very trepidated way. He was not comfortable. He was anxious. What's going on? What happened to them? And remember, Thessalonica was in a very strategic location. So for Paul, it was important to have a good outpost for the gospel in that place. So he's anxious. He's bothered. Timothy comes back from the trip and tells him, Paul, they're doing great. And besides that, I just want you to know that you only spent three weeks with them, but they are really fond of you. They long to see you again. They really love you. And that simple statement encouraged Paul to the point that he said, now we live. Now we feel that we're alive because you guys are standing fast in the Lord. In other words, the Jews could not thwart the ministry of the gospel, 
The Jews could not get away with what they were trying to do, just chasing Paul wherever he went to try to see how they would mess things up for him. And now he is happy having heard that. Now the connection is that from the previous chapter, Paul had already told them that he was, they were his crown and his joy in the Lord that he was looking forward to the Lord's coming and to see them again, and he has this eschatological hope in them. And now he connects that with this sadder anxiety occasion of him being in Athens, not knowing what, was happened, what had happened to the church. And from there, he goes on writing how he is praying and wanted to pray for them. So basically, from that anecdotal account, I came up with, okay, what can we learn from here? Well... Three things we can pray for one another. Three things we can bring to God as we pray. And, and it also made me think about the inspiration of the scriptures. I, I would have not, like, really, is this an inspired document? Is this something to be read in public in a church 2,000 years later? Yes, it is. It is scripture because God chose to leave us this document that is dynamic, that has its own motion, its own context, its own historicity, and from there, draw principles as the Word of God. And this is exactly what's happening here. Get and send me a text message right before I came in. What is a Rolodex? Because I have that illustration. The scriptures are not a Rolodex. Karen, a Rolodex is a device that was used before you were born and before we had phones and computers and PDAs, and it was something you put on your desk to look for things. You had there your cards or issues that you needed that were important to you, and you would just pull them by pull them by topic or by last name. Well, sometimes people treat the Bible as a Rolodex. Oh, let me see the verse today for consolation. Well, the Bible was not written that way. The Bible was written in its context. It is a very dynamic book. Yes, inspired by God. But for the Bible to be the true and living word in our hearts, it is the word of God. But for it to talk to us as the word of God, we have to delve into it and find out, what can this tell me? Well, this passage that is anecdotal, that is, that is describing Paul's subjective conditions in Athens, Paul's anxiety and why he was comforted because Timothy told them they are doing well and guess what? They love you. Then from there we have three things that we could say about how to pray for one another. And the first of those three things of how to pray for one another I pulled from verse 11. Paul prayed for a very specific providential encouragement. Specific providential encouragement. What is that? Paul says, now may our God and our Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. Before I get into that, let me just make a quick theological note. That line is completely mind-boggling. A Jewish rabbi who dedicated his life to persecute the Jewish idolatry of worshiping this man named Jesus. Because he didn't want to go back to the times of the deportation and of God's judgments. So he dedicates his life to persecute those who commit this idolatry. Now he's writing a letter, and in the same sentence he names God our Father, he says, Jesus our Lord. We read those things fast. 
But they are one of those things that when my mind goes dark in incredulity, reminds me, this is for real. This man went to the point of killing people and being willing to die for the worship of Yahweh, the only true God. And after he encountered Jesus, with all his intellectual prowess, with all his religious background, he understood that that Jesus, that he even says, I met him in the flesh. I met him when he walked on earth as a Pharisee, is our Lord. He wrote, every tongue one day will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. Not one of many lords, not one more master, not one more teacher, the Lord. Just as Yahweh is Adonai, Jesus is Lord. And to me that is a, that is, we could spend the rest of the time just delving into what it meant for a Jew to say that. Now back to our text, Paul is praying for something very specific. I call it a providential encouragement because it's one of those things that you ask for almost like if it were a sign or a token. It's like, God, prove to me that you're there. And he very specifically says, I want to see them again. Lord, please send me back to the Thessalonians. And God granted him that request. Many times (laughs) we think it's incorrect to pray so specifically. I'm one of those. We go on vacation. Dad, can you pray for snow? No, I'm not going to pray for snow. Because snow here is going to mess up a lot of people's lives. It's going to, be, it's going to create congested traffic. It's going to really thwart people's plans. And I cannot ask the Lord to snow for my vacation to be more enjoyable. So no, I won't pray for that. Now, I'm not saying don't pray for snow if you're going to see snow. What I'm saying is, We have to be careful in not being trivial when we pray. Now, that doesn't mean that we do not ask God for specific providential encouragements. In fact, to me, one of the greatest examples of being specific praying is Jesus in Gethsemane. Right before the cross, right before the epitome, the highest point in the history of creation, What did he ask? He said, Father, if it is possible, pass this cup from me. When the Son of God faced the reality of being made sin on our behalf, of being made accursed on a cross, and facing his Father's wrath, which he had never experienced, when he became aware of the moment that was approaching him, He was very specific. If it is possible, get the cross away. Of course, we know the answer. Not possible. John Murray's statement in his book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, the cross is indispensable in God's plan. It was not one of many options. It was the only option to redeem and satisfy the wrath of God. So Jesus said, then, not my will, but yours be done. Now, don't be afraid, beloved, of telling your father your wishes. Don't be afraid. We don't need to be that formal. When you want something, ask for it. 
We ask and we do not receive or we want and do not have because we do not ask. Now, of course, many times we ask the wrong way because we ask to spend it in our pleasures. But the point is, be specific in your requests. Paul says, I want to see you. And that's what I've asked the Lord and Father. At the same time, we have to be careful of not living just by providence. Well, then let me pray for these specific things. And if they don't happen, it means that God does not exist. I'm up to here with the deconstructioning former Christians. Oh, I used to be a Christian, but I realized that Christianity is not real, and it's really just a psychological thing that you get infatuated with at a young age. Why? Because you're disappointed that things didn't go your way? That's the danger of living by feelings or by providence and not by principles. You do what you have to, regardless of how you feel. God will add the blessing later on. At the same time, that doesn't mean that once in a while you say, hey, I need a little, little breath of fresh air. Please have mercy on me in this. And if God doesn't give that one to you, he's going to get you something better because that's his promise. To those who love him, he will cause all things to work together for their good. And one of the best things about being specific with God is that we're praying, we're praying not just to an almighty being. He can do whatever he wants. We're praying to an all-wise God. And being all-wise doesn't mean that you know everything. Yes, and God knows everything. Being all-wise is that since you know everything, and since he can do everything he wants, he will choose the best outcome of all the contingent issues. So pray. Pray for what you want specifically. Pray for one another specifically. Pray for providential encouragement and leave the answer to the all-wise God who will do according to his will. Secondly, Paul prayed that the love of the Thessalonians for one another may abound and increase. Verse 12 says, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and, and for all as we do for you. Now, notice the request in the text. Paul is not praying that they may love. They already loved. He's praying that their love may increase, and not only increase, but that it may be spread, that it may abound, that it may be overwhelmingly generous, lavished, manifest, abundant love for one another. And let me make this little remark that may be perhaps disturbing for those who are purist in their doctrine. I think I am, but I'm just getting old. Love, love, not purity of doctrine, is the hallmark of being a Christian. If you ask me, what are you? I'll tell you what I am. I'm Reformed, Credo Baptist, Covenantal, Amillennialist, Infralapsarian, and I don't know what else I can add. None of that stuff saves. If you are and you concur with me, awesome. 
If you don't, I couldn't care less. I hope you don't care either. Because the issue about the kingdom is not how accurate and pristine our doctrine is. Paul says you can have all knowledge, you can do all miracles, you can display all giftedness, you can speak the tongue of angels. I know Pentecostals love that one. Hakara, hakara, hakara. That's the tongue of angels. Read in the Bible that the angels spoke in the language that humans understood. So I don't know what hakala, hakala, hakala means. So check out your theology. Now, even if there is some angelic language of which I am not aware and there could well be because I know very little about what happens in heaven, even if you knew that language, Paul says, if you have no love, it's nothing. Zero. I wish I would have learned that when I was 17. I spent like 30 years of my life being this strict, pharisaical, doctrinal purist. And sometimes people would say to us, you know what, you guys have it all right, but you have no love. We took that as a compliment. <laughs> oh, beloved. The letter of 1 John has two things to distinguish a true believer from one who is not. Two. Read it. You know what they are? The first one is understanding who Jesus is. Understanding who the Son of God is in his person and in his work. You may have more or less in-depth understanding of the per- <clears throat> I'm sorry, of the person and of the work of Christ. But you have to know who Jesus is, to be saved, to come to him in repentance and faith. The second one is love for the brethren. That's it. The second one is not that I'm a cessationist, reformed, covenantal, confessional, Sabbatarian, whatever you want to be. No, the second one is love for the brethren. That's what Paul says. Make disciples. That's paramount. The paramount job of the church. What is Cornerstone for? Freddie has the lead acronym, and the D is discipleship. Well, awesome. Make sure that your mentoring and your discipleship includes love for one another. Because if it doesn't include love... We can have the best videos from Marcy Sproul, the best videos from Ligonier, the best videos from your favorite celebrity theologian. If we have no love, we have nothing. We missed the mark. Giftedness, activity, knowledge without love is a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. It is a burdensome noise. It is my neighbor, Wheat Walker, or whatever it is, at 7 o'clock in the morning on Saturdays. And he's, he, it's legal. After 7 o'clock, you can start mowing your, yawn, your, your lawn. But oh boy, how it bothers you. Well, is that sound? All these activities, all these things, all these websites, all these powerful things, being well-known, YouTube channels, everything. Benevolence, charities, money. No love. It's just a lawnmower at 7 o'clock on a Saturday. Remember that. Not my words, Paul's. He used another illustration. 
And finally, Paul prayed, thirdly, that the walk of the Thessalonians may be be marked by a holy blamelessness. That's what verse 13 says. So that he, that is God, may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before God and Father, before our God and Father, at the coming, and again he repeats the phrase, of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Again, he puts God, our God and Father, Yahweh, the God of my nation, the God of Israel, the God of the Old Testament, and our Lord Jesus Christ, and vote on the same line. Because Jesus is not just the second tier divinity, this first created angel, this first eon that emanated or came out from God. Jesus is God. He is our Lord. And again, he says, I pray that he may establish your hearts blameless and in holiness. Now, blamelessness, the subject of my paranoia for decades, is not perfection. Blamelessness, beloved, is is a very simple concept. It is not being under any public scandal. When the Bible says a pastor has to be blameless, a deacon, the deacon's wives, the elders, they have to be blameless. They they cannot be persons who are under a public scandal in the society they labor. That's the meaning of it. Or is not being under legal prosecution for a crime committed. That's the meaning of blamelessness. So when Paul says... I want your hearts to be established blameless. It is the same qualifications he's given to elders. I just want you guys to live a life that is public or free from public scandal. Free from having legal issues because you guys are criminals. That's his prayer. Holiness. (laughs) Yes, but you have to be holy. And then the paranoia now goes on steroids. Holy. I was visiting some museums last month. And as I was walking and seeing those dark paintings, huge paintings, huge, dark, shadowy. I just said, thank you, Jesus, that you made me me to be born in the 20th century. And that my concept of the gospel is molded by scripture and not by this medieval religion. I'm not saying they were not Christians back then. What I'm saying is that I was grateful that I was not born under those dark ages. Because sometimes we see holiness with that same darkness of those old paintings. Holy, sober, serious. Even the hymn we sang, John Newton, a hymn that I, that I like, Honestly, I, I, I love that hymn. And even I love its original tune. Many times I wept under that hymn because it is true. You pray for holiness, you pray for grace, you pray for kindness, you pray for growing in grace, and all you see is that you're going backwards. And the older you get, the worse it gets. It's like, like you feel sometimes, I haven't grown an inch. I haven't progressed in the gospel. What's going on? Well, you're praying for those things and God is showing you where you are. And it's painful. 
nothing makes you more aware of how overweight you are, and I'm talking about myself, that going on a diet or exercising, and that's when you realize, boy, I really have a lot of pounds to shed. Well, yes, the same happens with grace. Now, what is holiness? What, kids, what do you think it's to be holy? Oh, it's to be sober and serious and stiff. And that's a holy person. Well, that is not. Please, don't associate God with that because that is not being holy. If you grow up with that idea of being holy, then when you are really kind of free, you will not want anything to do with the God of the Bible. And I assure you that's not holiness. But let me try to paint to you what holiness looks like. There was this man who came to earth and he claimed to be God incarnate. He was announced that way by the prophets. He was announced that way by the angel who told his mother that she was pregnant with him. And he said that of himself. He even had the boldness to affirm nobody has ever known God except the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father is that's me. So I'm showing you guys how God is. And that man, that man, Jesus, to my knowledge, three times said things that we needed to learn. Have you been in class and the teacher says, hey, hey, pay attention. This is test material. You, you know what I'm talking about, right? And you really take notes. Oh, study that because that's going to come in the test, in the quiz. Well, Jesus sometimes did that. For example, on one occasion, he said, learn from me. What am I supposed to learn from this one who is the revealer of God, who is God on earth? What is God on earth to tell me to learn from him? He says, oh, learn from me that I am meek and of a humble heart. So do you want to know how holiness looks like? Meekness. This morning I was coming into to the parking lot and there's this big truck probably waiting to be ushered into Balter Meat Company and he's blocking the entrance to the parking lot. And the first thing that came to mind was my Dominican hot-blooded thing to just get out of the car and go to the driver and say, you're blocking the entrance. And I says, no, 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 no. I'm going to preach. I need to be holy. So I didn't do it. Didn't do it. Wrong motivation, but I didn't do it. Now, being meek looks like what I did, but I didn't do it because I'm meek. I did it because I didn't want to make a scene. But it is just suffering the aggravation, passing over when you're offended, passing over when somebody says something harsh at you, Jesus said, you pray for those who, who hurled abuse at you, who insult you, who do evil to you. Pray for them. Be like your Father in heaven. He makes his son come out over righteous and unrighteous. Jesus says, learn from me. I am meek. And I'm also of a humble heart. And humility is in your own mind just to be abased. It's to treat others as better than yourself. Oh, but I'm better than them. I, I'm smarter. Yeah, you may be. But you treat them as if they were smarter than you. Oh, but I'm, I'm stronger than them. Yeah, you, 
maybe, but you treat them as if they were stronger than you. You prefer them in honor. That's holiness. Jesus also said, learn what it means. And then he says, this is what I want. And this is Jesus quoting prophet Micah, who says, this is what God wants. And Jesus on earth, in Matthew 9, tells the Pharisees, this is what I want. He's saying, I'm God. Let me tell you what I want. Oh, holiness. Tell us, Jesus, that I read ten chapters of my Bible a day, that I pray two hours in a straight uh, on my knees, and that I act seriously and somberly. No, he says, this is what I want. I want mercy, not sacrifice. I came to call sinners to repentance, not the righteous. So that's holiness, loving compassion, loving mercy, especially in our case, who are the recipients of mercy. Many times we just snap and want to get even. The person didn't do what they were supposed to do, so let me just give them a piece of my mind. Well, God desires compassion. God desires compassion to the waiter who didn't take my order right. God desires compassion to the lady at the driving thing at KFC that instead of giving me my extra crispy, she brought it to me without the extra crispiness. And I'm going to give her a piece of my mind. And God says, you know what? I just want compassion. Poor lady has been there probably since 7 o'clock this morning, having a hard time. Maybe she has a kid sick at home. And she has all kinds of problems. And she just missed when you said extra crispy. That's all. That's what God wants. Compassion. Mercy, kindness, humility. And then, of course, Jesus says, and I want you guys to love one another just as I have loved you. And Jesus, how did you love us? Nobody has greater love than this, than what? That one puts his life for his friends. I've loved you to the point of going to the cross for your sins. And that's how I want you to love one another. So children and young people, that's holiness, not whatever I portray or seem to you that I do. No, I'm not a holy person. I need to learn those things badly. That's why when we see ourselves overwhelmed at how far we are from those things, then like Peter, we go to Jesus and say, Lord, whom shall I, shall I go to? Only you have words of eternal life. Please have mercy on me. Please help me to be like you. Please help me shine my little mirror that it may reflect your glory and your honor. Please help me at least to do that. I don't want great things. I don't want to be Elon Musk. I don't want to be uh, an influencer on the internet. Just help me with my little mirror to have it shiny that it may show who you are by people seeing what you have done in my life. And then Paul says, how do you do that? You walk before God in integrity because he says you, meet, you need to be established in this holiness but in eschatological hope when at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this eschatological hope, it's either that I'm going to be present when Jesus comes back or that I'm going to die and I'm going to see him. It's just a whole hope of, 
I shall see him. Even if my flesh disappears, my eyes will see God. That's what Job said. And in that eschatological hope, in that ultimate hope, you long to grow in holiness. That is the fuel of being blameless and holy and persevering before the Lord. And you do that before God. You do that in integrity. What is integrity? We live coram Deo. We live in the face of God. We live in the presence of God. We have this sense of saying, and I used to do that. I used to do that back in my days. And now we're entering the presence of God. Really? <laughs> You're entering the presence of God? This is a true story. One of my, my friends, or they had a church, and, and in those days, we, we didn't believe that you could have special music in church or have a choir. But they had a choir, and people wanted to hear people singing in the church. He says, okay, well, this is what we're going to do. We're going to dismiss the service, and then the choir will come. So when the pastor comes and prays and says, we are dismissed, thank you, Father, for being with us, now the choir can come because God left the building. We are capable of believing those things. We don't enter the presence of God. We are always in the presence of God. That's what Paul told the Athenians, quoting one of their poets. In him we are, in him we live, in him we exist. It's like you are swimming in your pool, but you're not just swimming. You are actually scuba diving in your pool, and you're surrounded by water. That's how we live in the presence of God. We're always before him. And that makes you walk in integrity. You do it before God. In consistency, in endurance, and in integrity. Consistency is repetitive predictability. What happens when you're consistent? That we, we know what's coming. Let me share a secret with you. An older dude? No. No, I'm not going to say that. It's not, it's not right. Forget it. Sorry. But consistency is being predictable all the time. People know what you're going to do. You start a book, you finish it. You start a project, you finish it. I don't like the book. It really became boring. Yeah, but I'm going to finish it. Because many times that happens. You don't start a hundred things. No, you start one and you finish it. And then the next one. And then the next one. That's being consistent. Endurance. You continue doing it. You, you persevere. Yes, let's go running. We're going to go for 10 miles. And you, you're not made it to the first block. <gasps> no, that, that's not endurance. Endurance is that you just go. You go slowly. You finish your course. You finish your race. You don't, you don't get hyper. You're not emotional about things. But you persevere. You endure under the weight. And then, of course, integrity. The integrity is you walk the walk of the talk. It's very easy to talk, 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 talk. Talk is cheap. One of the... Do you want to know what is, what is one of my greatest conflicts when I teach to you or preach to you? That I know talk is cheap. And all the time I'm trying to, Lord, I want to preach your word, but as a sinner I am, it's not about me I'm talking, it's about Jesus, and about the faith, and about the book. Because talk is cheap. 
and anybody can talk. But no, I'm going to walk the walk of the talk. I'm going to be in integrity. And no, it is not perfection. Sometimes it's overwhelming, the imperfection we feel. But it's not about us. It is about saying with Peter, Lord, whom shall I go to? I know I can't make it, but I don't have anywhere to go. Only you have words of eternal life. Now, that means running, looking unto Jesus. It doesn't mean getting yourself packed and filled with duties and activities. Beware, those duties and activities many times choke the simplicity of devotion to Christ. Devotion to Christ is simple. But sometimes you just get yourself packed with so many things that you don't even pray because you do it automatically. Don't. Christian life can be very discouraging. Christian life, life seems to be like we're in this losing team. In Komatsu, we have a saying. We have 20% market share. You know what that means? That every 10 quotes you make, you know you're going to lose 8. That's, that's pretty dark. And I've been 32 years doing that. Like every deal, every 10 of them, I'm going to lose 8. Yes, but I'm going to win 2. So you just focus on the 2 you're going to win. Christian life is that way. It doesn't seem that we are in the winning team. And I will conclude with a story. It's a true story. It happened to me this week. In my consecutive Bible reading, I came to Revelation. Don't tell anyone I said that. But that is the book I least like to read. Revelation, oh no. Because I don't understand it. And I've been reading it for decades. And I've read books about it. And I've taken master classes on it. And I don't understand it. And the more they explain it to me, the more confusing it gets. But finally I got the deal of Revelation. Because at the beginning it says this book is, blessed is the one who reads this book. And who understands the prophecy. It's a book of consolation. Do you know what the consolation is? That Jesus wins. That's what the book is about. But what about 666? Oh, it could be Nero. It could be a guy in the future. It could be somebody in the... Who cares? Saints are being persecuted. This beast are controlling the world. These kingdoms are ruling over. But at the end, this stone that was not caught with hands, the stone of God's kingdom, the stone of Jesus, the cornerstone, fills the earth. And Jesus wins. That hope is the eschatological hope that Paul in 1 Thessalonians uses to prod, encourage, and boost the saints' faith. And that's what we need, beloved, to persevere, abound in loving one another, in walking blamelessly and in holiness before God. And yes, why not? In praying for one another, even for small tokens of providential encouragements. Let us pray. Father, take your word and use it and apply it as we may need it. Help us to grow in grace and in the knowledge of Christ. But since we sang John Newton's hymn, please make us grow, but please don't put us in the furnace too long. Have mercy on us. And thank you for your kindness and for your blessings. Thank you for our Savior, because he completes and perfects 
what we are not and cannot. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.